So when I was a child, when I grew up, I, I, okay, let me start back, start over. I just saw the news that Bob Barker of The Price is Right just passed away yesterday at the age of 99. Now, some of the young ones here, that, doesn't, that name doesn't mean anything, Bob Barker. But many of us saw The Price is Right, right? When, years ago, that was kind of a favorite for my mom. Uh, just this, you know, for those of you who don't know, it was just a really big famous game show where people won all types of prizes. They had to do some clever guessing about things and, and use strategy and that sort of a thing. And then certain things were just down to chance. And, and it came down to, after a, after a whole series of contestants in the earlier stages of the, of the game, that you ended up with two playing off of each other in the, in the kind of the final round sort of a thing. And, and they would be presented with these huge packages of, of things, a car and you know, a full dining room set and uh, all expenses paid vacation for two to Hawaii and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And they would have to guesstimate uh, what, the, what the cost of this total package was. Right? And you had the two against each other. Each had their own separate package, but they were always grand and glorious. And of course, there were lovely models who would stand there waving their arms about to, to make it that much more attractive, apparently. And, and they would have to guess. And then the person who came closest without going over was the winner of this huge prize. Now, just imagine you had gone through all the rigmarole of getting onto the show, getting up on the stage, winning your first round, getting into that stage and being presented with all of this huge package with the big car and with especially the vacation, you know, right? Now, just imagine just, you know, a two-week vacation, all expenses paid to Hawaii pre-wildfire. And, and you, you win, and they give you the tickets. They give you all of this, all, all, all of what you need to be able to take advantage of this, of this prize and of this vacation, this tremendous holiday. Now, would you accept that? Or would you say, eh, Hawaii, been done. I don't know. I, I mean, I'd miss my shows. You know, I think I better stay here. I mean, who's going to water the plants? If, if I go off to Hawaii for two weeks. Are you going to blow that off? Well, I don't think so. I'd be all over that trip to Hawaii. Well, so if a gift, especially a grand gift and a wonderful gift, that is to give you relief and rest and recreation and delight is offered to you for free, why would you turn it down? And yet God has offered this to anyone who will accept. He's paid all the price, the cost he's taken on himself, and he offers the ultimate rest, the ultimate holiday, the final and perfect retirement in paradise. And yet, so many people reject it. It stymies us. And is there any excuse? I mean, yes, there are people who need to be told. The sad thing is that this truth was shared with all of humanity originally. 
And, and you know, we look at societies, we look at, at places around the world that don't seem to know the gospel, and yet there's not even an excuse for them. Romans 1 tells us that God has revealed the truth to them. They can see that there's a true God by looking at nature. And furthermore, every society, every people group ultimately goes back to Noah on the ark and his family. The truth was known, the truth was present about God and about the the failures of sin and the requirements for sacrifice and all of the things that lead up to an understanding of the gospel. True, they need to hear the gospel. We have a responsibility. But when people respond to the revelation that God has given them, he provides more. And sadly, we see in Romans chapter 1 that societies have, have suppressed the truth because they prefer the sin. They prefer the rebellion. And so these truths are often lost. But God has been pointing to this from the very, very beginning. And when the last time we were in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 1 through 3, where we are again today, we, we were introduced to the, the commandment that God gave his people to observe the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the first of the five major ordinances, the five major uh, celebrations or holy days, holidays, holy days, that he gave to his people. And the Sabbath was the, oh, it's a weekly holiday. He says very clearly in the text, this day is to be holy for you. That is the origin of the word holiday, a holy day. And so he commanded them, not suggested, but commanded them to observe this day of rest. And that's what Sabbath means. Now, we, we have conflated um, by association, the word Sabbath with Saturday, because that was the original pattern, because it was the seventh day, and that was the day that God rested, and that was the day that was established for his people to be the Sabbath. But Sabbath does not mean Saturday. Sabbath means to cease or to rest. And God's command was, six days you work, one day you rest. And we saw last time that God established that pattern from the very beginning in the way that he performed creation, God doesn't need rest. He didn't need that seventh day. He didn't create the universe and go, Phew, I need a break. He spoke it all into being. It's kind of funny, a little bit of another sidetrack, but once again, you know, there, there's really no reason for anybody to think that God needed millions of years to bring these things in, into existence when the it, Scripture says clearly that he just spoke and it happened, and it says there's evening and morning, the first day, evening, morning, second day. It's quite clearly laid out to be 24-hour days. Really, my question is not, you know, why wouldn't God take all that time? Or why, why would he take that much time? Why did he need even six days? God being infinite and sovereign, omnipotent, he could have he knew the whole thing in his mind already. He could have just spoken it all into existence at once. Boom, in one second, it could have all been there. But for some reason, he spread it out over six whole long 24-hour days and then demonstrated rest on a seventh day, established a cycle for us. Pre-curse, pre-fall, pre-Mosaic law, this was God's design. Now, why? 
Yes, he was very strict about instituting it for the Israelites. He had already established it from, from the week of creation, but when it came to establishing his law and his covenant with his people Israel, he codified that. He said, you must do this. You must take this day of rest. You must take it seriously, deadly, seriously. Why? Why was that so important to God? Couldn't he have created people and animals and everything in this world? I mean, pre-curse and everything. Couldn't the people have been made in such a way that they just had perpetual energy and, and, and strength and didn't need a day of rest? But he built it in somehow, this pattern of the six days of rest. Uh, six days of work and one day of rest. There must have been a purpose to all of this. And there's significance given to it throughout Scripture. So why is that? Well, last time we just looked just by way of uh, refreshing our outline in our minds. And I'm sorry, I don't have a handout for you today. But you can see this outline if if it's important. You can certainly scratch it down. So the last time we looked first at the significance of the Sabbath's precedent for Old Testament Israel. These guys, you guys have these things in the slides, so... Maybe we can go there. We see that the pattern was established, as I said, by God at creation, and that the word Sabbath actually means to cease to rest. So go ahead and advance a little bit more. And then we saw that the law was given by God to establish the covenant. In other words, God said that this Sabbath will be a sign of the relationship between you and me, he said to his people Israel, as was circumcision. These two things were particularly critical, and they seem like odd things for God to choose to be the signs of his covenant relationship with these people. But so he did. And then we saw the significance of the Sabbath's precedent for New Testament believers because we don't live under the Mosaic law. Jesus satisfied the law. So the pattern of one day for rest and worship, uh, we noticed, predated the Mosaic law, predated the fall and the curse. Therefore, it represents an aspect of God's original design, and the law was fulfilled when Jesus established the new covenant. So now what does the Sabbath mean? Is it still important? Is it significant for us in any way? Well, today I want to look at the significance of the Sabbath's provision for all people. This is the third major part of the outline that we began last time the significance of the Sabbath's provision for all people. See, the pattern of the day of rest when the work is done actually points to salvation. It points to God's ultimate plan. God in His omniscience, His all-knowing, knew all that would transpire. He anticipated the fall. He anticipated the curse. He anticipated the separation, the rift between himself and his creatures. And he had his solution prepared. And he flagged it even in that creation week with that day of rest. It became an important thing because, from the beginning because it points to something very important at the end. And he wanted to create perspective from the outset. He was prepared to redeem the fallen creation. The Sabbath was a symbol and a foreshadowing of God's ultimate redemption through Jesus Christ, which gives spiritual rest 
to those who respond in obedient faith. That's where we see the real significance and the real truth of the Sabbath. When we come to the New Testament and we see what book have I mentioned? Let's see how well we're paying attention. What book in the New Testament best helps us to understand the significance of the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament? Hebrews, right. Who said it? All right, excellent. We've got a few there. All right, excellent. Very good. Good students. Gold star. So we look to Hebrews, and we see these, these frequent, constant references and allusions to the things that were in the Old Testament, and specifically a lot in the book of Leviticus. Right? So we're going to look there now, and this is where uh, I'm going to spend a little bit of time in this other passage in the, in the book of Hebrews, chapter, starting in chapter 3. So I'll invite you to go there. It's long enough. I wasn't going to try to put this on all the bazillions of slides it would take. So go to your own copy, please, to Hebrews, starting in chapter 3, verse 12. And this is what we want to observe. This is what we want to notice. That the Sabbath, as it says in that dot point there, the Sabbath was a symbol and a foreshadowing of God's ultimate redemption through Jesus Christ, which gives spiritual rest to those who respond to obedient faith. And that's on very purposeful that I say obedient faith. Because God views the response of faith to what He has offered as a matter of obedience and failure to do so as a matter of rebellion. And we see that in this text. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. I'm not going to fully um, expose this text. That's what expository preaching is, right? Exposing the text. I'm not going to dig into everything because this section alone of Hebrews could be uh, one very long sermon by itself or two or three normal-sized sermons. Even so, uh, so I'm just, I want to just make the connections here most critical as we go. So I'll just comment along the way. So Hebrews chapter three, beginning of verse twelve, the believers receive this warning. Now remember, the book of Hebrews was largely written to; it was written to a mixed audience, but it was written largely to Messianic Jewish people, the congregations of, of people who who were Jewish, who recognized Jesus as their Messiah. And now uh, the context of the book is that many of them are being challenged by the Judaizers. They were the ones who, uh, some of them may have been believers and some of them uh, believers who were confused and some of them may not have been believers at all. Those who were not believers at all among the Judaizers tried to kind of corral what they saw as this sect of Judaism that was following Jesus, and they're trying to draw them back in and say, okay, well, even if you believe that Jesus was this important prophet, you still should be following the Mosaic law. But the greater number of them, I think, were those who were, uh, who were Jewish believers but still didn't quite understand the significance of Jesus' fulfillment of the law, and they were still trying to convince people that, you know, that they needed to try to follow the law along with their faith in Jesus, and, and it was drawing people away. I have a hard time believing they were sincere believers, but they were maybe people who at least consented to Jesus and, and Christianity to some degree, and they were luring people almost back to Judaism. And so this was the temptation for the, for the 
Jewish believers in the New Testament to, to, to not properly pull away from those, the, the entrapments of the Mosaic law, which was very good. It had its purpose. We see in the book of Romans, Paul talks about the significance, the importance of the, of the law because it was a teacher. It demonstrated what God required that people could not satisfy adequately, and therefore we have this separation, we have this need for a Savior and the Messiah who would come, who is Jesus, who would satisfy the law on our behalf. Now, we still owe allegiance to God. There are still things that are valuable to God throughout all time, but we didn't have to live by that code. And this is where some people are even confused today, still attempting to observe the Sabbath very literally as the seventh day and insisting that we follow other aspects of the Old Testament law today in order to be right with God. And they, they kind of fall in line with it, the Judaizers of the, of the first century, those people who are trying to, to create a fusion between the Mosaic law and, of the Old Testament and Christianity of the New Testament. But the trouble is you can't pick and choose Jesus said that he fulfilled the law, that he brought a new covenant that, that supplants, that replaces the old covenant. And that's what the author of Hebrews is, is stressing, that this is a new covenant in Jesus' blood. He's established something different. So it eclipses, it, it supplants, it replaces the old covenant. So now today we have people who are, who are trying to say, no, you need to still you know, do everything on Saturday and you don't do any work and you don't, you know, and trying to follow Old Testament codes and they're just picking and choosing what seems to work for them today. But I, I'm here to tell you, if you're going to live by the Mosaic law, you don't get to pick and choose. The Israelites didn't get to pick and choose oh, I'll follow this part of the law. That makes sense for me today, you know, but that, uh, no. Okay, so look, if you're going to follow the Mosaic law, then I hope you're raising goats and sheep. And I hope you're prepared to be offering them up as burnt sacrifices on a regular basis. Right? You, you don't get to pick and choose. You take all the law or you accept that Jesus has established a new covenant. So this was the trouble for these uh, first century Jewish believers was that they were so, you know, it was all of their upbringing. It was, in, it was all of their culture. It was everything that they had been taught and everything that everyone around them was doing was still trying to observe not only the Mosaic law, but all the things that had been added to it by the rabbis and the Pharisees that people were very dogmatic about. And, and there was tremendous pressure, peer pressure, social pressure, to observe these things, to do these things. And so, so they, were, they were struggling with their position of faith and their relationship with God through Jesus Christ and grace and mercy and, and the law. And, oh! and so the, the author of Hebrews, and we don't know who it is. Some people assume Paul, but I'm not convinced. It got my own theory. It doesn't matter really because it, the Bible didn't tell us who wrote it. So, you know, I think it was Barnabas, but it's not real important. So, so the author of Hebrews is, is warning these, these Jewish believers, don't get sucked back into Judaism. You need to really, and to put it in today's vernacular, you, you need to own your position in Jesus Christ. You need to accept what's been done for you and let your life be changed by that. Cling to the faith. 
And don't be drawn away by the system of works. The whole point of the system of works was to point out how no one can satisfy God's holiness and his perfect demands. Now, Jesus has come to demonstrate satisfaction of that in him. We accept what he has done on our behalf, and now we have a different kind of a life. We're not trying to satisfy God by a whole system of works and sacrifices. We're just trying to live an obedient and faithful and grateful life. So the author of Hebrews offers up these various arguments and says, well, if you do this, it's just like the, like the sacrifice of Christ is no good to you. It doesn't mean that you lose your salvation by, by sinning or something like that. He's presenting the arguments, the logical arguments to say, if you're not accepting fully the grace and the rest and the new position that you have in Christ, well, then it's like Jesus' sacrifice was for nothing for you. So that's where some people are confused as well. They think that Hebrews is somehow suggesting that people can lose their salvation or something. That's not true. So this is part of all of that warning, and, he's, and because he's talking to largely a crowd of, of Jewish believers, he, he expects that they have all of the context in their minds and their understanding of the Old Testament and all of its events because they were taught that from the time they were infants. So he makes references to these things that we can trace back. We can find the, you know, what he's referring to, but he just alludes to them very freely. And so we'll, we'll kind of see some of these things as we go. So anyway, he's saying, take care, brothers. This is one of those, those warnings in the book, saying, take heed, beware. Don't let people rob you of your faith, in other words. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. In other words, lest you become like an unbeliever, lest you don't live with a full understanding and fully embracing the grace that you have enjoyed. Be on guard. Don't let this happen. Don't be drawn away. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If our faith is sincere, it will endure. As it is said, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now that is a a quote from Psalm 95 where the people are reminded, the people of Israel are being reminded to not be unfaithful in their obedience and their trust in God. And it's referring back to the rebellion was. Uh, let me read these verses. It's Psalm 95. If you want to go there, you can, you can join me or you can just listen. Psalm 95, verses 6 through 11. I read the first part of this at the beginning of the service. I'll read what follows now. I'll pick up at the beginning and read what follows. Psalm 95, verse 6 and on. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before, it's actually Yahweh, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on on that day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. This is God speaking. 
For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. See, the first rest that was offered to the people of Israel was was their possession of the land of Canaan. That was their first very practical rest that was offered to them, beyond the, the Sabbath always. And, there, and we will learn more about some of the other holidays as well that were times of rest. But the first big rest that he's referring to here was a deliverance, a salvation, where he promised that he would bring them out of Egypt, deliver them from slavery, take them faithfully to the promised land, and establish them there and bless them richly. So that's the rest he's talking about here, that they will not enter my rest because they failed to believe. They didn't accept what I was offering. They grumbled and complained and looked backward instead. And see, those names, those places, Meribah and Massah, Meribah means testing, and Massah means quarreling, because those are the descriptors that are used in the text there where the people started arguing and quarreling and rebelling against Moses and his leadership and saying, here we are in the wilderness and we don't have any water to drink. We're just going to die out here. Thanks a lot, Moses. You brought us out of Egypt. We had it made back there. One and a half square meals every two days. I mean, there at least we had water. right? So forgetfulness of the horrible conditions, the slavery, the fact that they had called out to God, Lord, deliver us! As it says, the beginning of of Exodus, and God heard his people and decided to act according to his plan as he had promised to Abraham that they'd be there 400 years and and so on. So now he's delivered them gloriously. We have all of the plagues, the demonstration of God's power, taking them across the Red Sea on dry land and bringing them out and he's moving them toward the wilderness and they get thirsty and they go, oh, why don't we leave Egypt? What's wrong with you that you would do this to us? Why couldn't you leave things alone? We should go back to Egypt. And God was so angry. That's again, anthropomorphism, right? Demonstrating the human traits and in God, he responded in wrath, said, how ungrateful are you? I have delivered you. I have provided for you up to this point. I defended you against the armies of Egypt. I gave you manna. I have provided for you again and again. And now because you're thirsty, you whine and complain and look backwards and you reject my gift of the rest that is before you. All you have to do is follow and obey and trust and I will deliver you to the land of Canaan. It'll all be yours. And instead, you rebel against my leadership. Those are all my words conveying what God was (laughs) saying to them in much nicer words. But with all the sternness, he rejected them for rejecting him. Let them die. Let them wander for 40 years. It only had to take a few weeks to get those people across to Canaan. But instead, they ended up wandering around Saudi Arabia for 40 years until this whole generation died off because God said, you will not enter my rest. You failed to believe. You failed to accept what I offered you. 
So the warning here, this reference in Hebrews, is pointing back to that for these for the for this Jewish believers in the first century saying, don't be like them back there at that time of rebellion in the wilderness. Don't fail to believe. Don't fail to accept the rest that God is offering you. Don't look back to what you had before when God has delivered you. He's offered you full deliverance and ultimate rest in paradise. So he's saying, don't do like, don't do like that. Don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Moving into verse, chapter 4. Therefore, he says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Right? So that's the obedience of faith. They failed to obey. Verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and he's referring back to the Old Testament. Pastor Mike talked about this a couple weeks, uh, last week or recently, talked about how you know, New Testament writers would refer to the, to the Old Testament. And so as it is said by the prophet, you know, it might be a little bit vague and they might paraphrase, but they, they were saying the right thing. They were summarizing correct things, right? Remember, they didn't have chapters and verses and all that stuff that we have today of, of the Old Testament scriptures at the time. They had scrolls that was like, this is, this is the book of Isaiah. You know, this, this is the, the Pentateuch. These are the, the books of the writings of Moses and so on. And so they would just refer to these things. They didn't have chapter and verse to provide. Okay? So he's saying, I believe I recall, and of course he knows it's very true. He's memorized it probably. Uh, God rested on the seventh day from all his work. Sorry, I, I jumped too far ahead. Um, he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Uh, verse 4. Verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested, I was there, on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. So God had established a pattern of the Sabbath, of the seventh day, a day of rest to follow work. Back in the time of creation. Now he's providing this rest, this promise of the, of the promised land of Canaan for his people Israel. And, there's, and here the author of Hebrews is, is layering these on top of each other, saying God offers rest. He's the provider of rest, and people are supposed to obey and follow and accept that rest, and to fail to do so is a rebellion. 
And so when they do that, God rejects them. When, he re- when they reject him, he rejects them. So since therefore it remains for some to enter it, now here he's making his case for the ultimate rest, the final rest that God promises. Now he's saying the one that Moses was talking about wasn't the only rest, the Sabbath, related to the pattern of seven days established at creation. And the the rest that was promised to the people later to go to the land of Canaan wasn't the final and ultimate rest that was important to God. But there's still another one that we are meant to enter. This is is what he's going to explain here now in these verses, starting in verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, this rest of God, those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's Psalm 95. So he's saying there was Moses, then there was David. God keeps calling people to a time of rest, and yet he's saying, well, if Joshua had given them rest, in other words, if they had their final rest in the land of Canaan, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So there's still another rest, right? So rest wasn't completed just with the observance of regular weekly Sabbaths under Moses. Final rest wasn't established by getting to the land of Canaan. God, that would have been the reference to Joshua. He's the one who took them in. But he's saying, he still talks, God still talks about another day of rest. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Verse 9, so then, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And yet people are still trying to work, he's saying. People are still trying to follow this work system, this Judaism. They haven't really entered into his rest. So he says in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He describes the rest in greater elaboration in the the context. If we were to take in a greater context, we would see how clearly he's talking about the final rest of of heaven. But you have a status that that leads you there. It's kind of like the, the, uh, the engagement or the being the betrothed that Pastor Mike explained in the New Testament context, where it was like the the, the marriage contract was already established. It was already supposed to be a done deal. But there's a later time when it comes to full fruition. And so it is for us today, when we accept what God offers through Jesus Christ, we are already brought into the status of owning this rest, and therefore we don't need to follow all that work system over there to be right with God. And yet there's still something even greater to look for. The final full fruition of this rest will be heaven itself. That final retirement in paradise. So the author of Hebrews is issuing this warning to the New Testament believers, remember what's been offered to you at such great cost, paid for by God. Remember what is yours by rights if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and live accordingly. Stop trying to do religious things that you think might impress God. Stop trying to follow human systems. 
Rest in the Lord. He's accepted you. If you've accepted Christ, then he's accepted you and he's granted you this status, this position in Christ that guarantees you don't have to earn his love by a system of works and sacrifices. You're guaranteed that one day you will have that wonderful retirement in paradise. That's yours. Live like that. Cling to this, this faith, this obedience of faith where you cling to this relationship that you have with God and you live and walk in line with that, looking forward to that ultimate retirement that he offers you. B on our outline says, the love of God was poised to provide salvation rest before even the burden of sin appeared. God knew what was coming and he had made a provision in advance. Before we saw the pattern established a creation, the law given by God to establish a covenant and the pattern of one day that predated the Mosaic law and the law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But now we see the pattern was meant to point to salvation and as the love of God that prepared a way for salvation, that provided salvation for us even before the burden was laid on us. So that gives some clarity, some understanding to the words of Jesus when he was confronted about the things that he did, the healing that he was carrying out on the Sabbath that so offended the Pharisees. He reminded them, as we see in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. See, all along it was God's purpose to provide rest. It was always his gracious gift. And yes, he insists upon accepting the gift, but it's for our good. In the very practical sense of having that day of rest and worship for the people in old times, for us today, in our position of faith in Jesus Christ, resting from the, the works of religious systems to try to earn God's pleasure, and then ultimately that rest when we will be delivered from this body of sin, delivered from this world of sin, and enter into that retirement in paradise with, in his very presence. So Sabbath was made for us. We weren't made to serve the Sabbath. It's God's rest that is offered to us that we are supposed to enjoy. So there are just a few things to consider here. The significance given to the Sabbath throughout the Bible indicates a central spiritual truth for all people in all times because we see it before the law, we see it after the law, this reference to a Sabbath. God provides the rest we need from both our physical and spiritual labors. So yes, there's a practical element yet today. Now the New Testament, in the New Testament, the, the principles, the key elements of the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament are all repeated for New Testament believers, applied a bit differently in some ways, but the principles have, are repeated again for New Testament believers. We're, we're still supposed to love God and God alone and not worship any other idols and honor our parents and and not make false accusations and not rob our neighbors and, and be faithful to our spouses and so on. The only one that doesn't get repeated is actually the observance of the Sabbath. There are nine commandments repeated in the New Testament. The Sabbath is the missing one. 
The tithe is also not repeated in the same sense of a literal 10%. I should just kind of stick that in. But the giving is there. But we see here that, that the understanding of the Sabbath is still the principle predated the law. So that's why it doesn't have to be repeated in the New Testament as an element of the law, of the commandments. And we're still supposed to have a day. The New Testament believers observed that straight away after the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the first day of the week, that became the day of their rest and worship. That pattern was established at the very beginning of the, of the first believers. We see it referenced even in the New Testament. So there's still the six days of work and the day of rest and worship, but that's God's provision for the physical needs. Here we see that there's also a provision for the spiritual need. The spiritual rest that we need can be found and is provided for by God through Jesus Christ. So the second point, since God has offered such a priceless gift to all who will receive it, there is no good excuse for failing to do so. In fact, God considers that the deepest personal offense. That is disobedience. In his words, rebellion. To fail to enter his rest. That spiritual rest. That which is received by putting faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now this begins to become serious for a person who has not made that decision of faith to accept what God offers through Jesus Christ. That rest from personal effort that, that constant wondering, worrying, struggling, trying, hoping, wondering, am I good enough? What's my end going to be? Is it really a dark nothing when I die? Or is there something afterwards and what will I face? And some people are so horrib- horrified by the thought that they turn to drugs and alcohol and any number of other distractions because they can't even contemplate what might be on the other side. As much as they even try to tell themselves, oh, there's no God, there's no heaven, there's no hell. We're just, you know, we're just worm food when we die. That's all there is to it. Yet there's something inside that nags, that says, you might not be right about that. Because God's put that there. Because God is real. Because there is something after this. And if a person has not accepted the rest that God has offered through His Son, Jesus Christ, what they have to anticipate is horrifying. It is beyond comprehension. But there's no need because He's offered so freely. If you have not yet entered into the spiritual rest that has been purchased for you at the cost of Jesus' sacrifice, this is the next point, guys, You really should do that today. Jesus' own appeal, we see in Matthew, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Isn't that what everybody needs the most? Is there any greater need than rest for your soul? Jesus offers this invitation for anyone to accept. Come to me. 
Yes, you labor, you worry, you wonder. Can I ever be good enough? Am I religious enough? Am I, what happens when I die? You're heavy laden with the burdens of, of your troubled life. And Jesus says, come to me. I will give you a Sabbath. I will give you rest for your soul. If there's anyone who hears this sermon and has not taken advantage of this beautiful invitation, I really hope you'll do that today. I hope, I hope you'll do this on first hearing and not put it off. This is not the sort of thing that you, that you say, maybe I'll deal with that later. Because there are no guarantees in this world. For the person who says, oh, maybe I'll deal with that later, we, you don't know if you're going to have it later. You know, heart attacks often don't announce themselves in advance. My dad didn't get notice. Thankfully, he's doing well. He's still recovering. But my dad didn't get notice. You know, two days from now, you're going to have a heart attack. You know, act accordingly. You don't get warnings like that, or for strokes, or for crashes on the highway. You don't know that you have a later. And if you fail to enter God's rest when it is offered to you, God sees it as a rebellion, as a rejection, as an offense. And the word that's used again and again in the text that a person like that faces is his wrath. I don't want to be in that position. I'm thankful I'm not. There's no merit of my own. God graciously introduced the gospel to my life that, that I could understand that all I had to do was accept the gift of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful that that opportunity was granted and that he gave me the understanding and the, and the faith to believe that I could respond to that. And so, so no merit of my own, and yet I know I get the full package. I get the holiday in paradise. It's mine for sure because it's a gift from God that I've accepted by faith. And I hope that everyone who hears this message will do the same. Let's pray. Father, you have been so good to your creatures who you even knew from the very beginning would rebel against you. When offered that, that free choice, that free will to choose to love and obey you or to go our own way, you knew that we would go the wrong way. And so from the very beginning, you instituted this plan for redemption, this plan to turn things around, to provide forgiveness and rest and restitution in your presence one day. And so, Father, we just thank you that you are so faithful to, to declare this, to demonstrate this throughout the text and the history of the Old Testament and through the ministry of your Son, Jesus Christ, and through the explanations provided us through your, your writers of the, of the epistles. We're so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us and your plan in this way so faithfully, so fully, that you have thrown open this, this amazing invitation that anyone who will can enter your rest. 
Anyone can be certain of that ultimate Sabbath holiday in your presence simply by entering in by faith, by the obedience of faith, by accepting what your son has done for us when he offered himself in sacrifice on the cross. And when you accepted that sacrifice and raised him from the dead, proving that it was done, that death and sin were conquered, they no longer have to be our master. Father, I pray that you would help any and everyone who hears this message to understand that it is, it is their privilege and their duty to accept the rest that you have offered through Jesus Christ by faith. I pray that you do that work in their lives, that you would grant them true understanding and faith to believe that they would respond to you as they should, that they would experience that rest. Help us, Father, those of us who have already made that decision, who have already entered into that status of, of, of rest in Jesus Christ, help us to, to live faithfully in accordance with that, just as the author of Hebrews warned those, those New Testament believers. Help us not to look back Help us not to, to value the, the things of, of our previous slavery more than the wonderful gifts that you have given us in you. Help us to walk faithfully and joyfully and obediently that we can enjoy this rest that you have granted even to the degree that we have it now as we anticipate that ultimate and final rest one day in your presence. We need your strength. We do face challenges. We do face pressures. We face the weakness of our own flesh and, and mind that are cursed by sin in this world. And so we ask that your spirit would do a great work in us and that you would draw us to your word again and again where we can be refreshed and corrected and encouraged and where we can see you more truly and know you more intimately so that we can walk this walk of faith as you have ordained for us to do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.